Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Gateway. Just want to add my welcome to that of Joe's. It's good to have you with us. Thank you for taking time out of your week to come and join and be part of our faith community. Over the uh, past three weeks, we have been looking at the invitation by God through His Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us correct and respond to biblical realities when we are faced by difficult situations. Sometimes when we face challenges in life, we have a very remarkable choice to make of how we are going to react. Do we react good or in a godly sense, or do we just, in our our humanness and in our brokenness, respond in, in a certain way? And the challenge to rethink, to reframe our responses and subsequent actions, as it were, as the enemy of our soul desires to rob us of peace and of wholeness. How we respond, how we react in situations really does set us up in some ways to struggle or to succeed. And uh, these are available on podcast, but we have already looked at regrets and how to respond to those, how to respond to fear when we find ourselves incredibly fearful or fear becomes part of our life. And last week, we looked at the whole area of rejection, when we are rejected by those who are are near and dear to us, rejected by those whom we work with, how do we respond in those given situations? Rick Warren says these words, it is not just what you eat that matters, it's what eats you. You can have the right macrobiotics and organic food, but if your body is filled with resentment, worry, fear, lust, guilt, anger or bitterness, or any other emotional disease, it is going to shorten your life. I want to read from Genesis chapter 4, and I want to read verses 1 through to 16. Genesis 4, verses 1 through to 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what you have done, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Today I want to turn our attention to the issue of anger. The first question that God asks after the story of the Garden of Eden is recorded in our passage of Genesis 4, verse 6. In this case, God asks a man called Cain a simple question. Why are you angry? Cain and brother Abel compete with one another, and Cain is jealous of Abel for all that he is and all that he has, and he doesn't like the comparison when he compares him with his own life. So as a result, he gets angry and he kills his brother. Anger always leads to death. When it is unchanneled, when it is unbridled, when it is uncontrolled, it will eat us and everyone around us. But the reality for many people and those who suffer as a consequence is that it's also very heartbreaking. Why are you so angry is a question we could ask so many of us. Please, please tell us. The results of anger in Cain's life are the results of anger in all our lives when it is an anger that it is misplaced and misguided. With anger, we wander, we are lost, and we feel misplaced and misguided. With anger, we become something of an untouchable area because we are growing in insecurity and we are becoming more and more paranoid. We find ourselves unable to celebrate anyone else's good fortune or blessing. Eventually, we die or we exit something of the presence of God. This doesn't mean that we live in a place that God is not, but we live in a place that we don't feel his presence like we once used to, that we no longer experience nor enjoy his presence like perhaps we once did. Because anger has had the effect of closing us off to him and also because of the resentment we feel. We exit something of the presence of the living God. As twee and as pathetic as it may sound, and for those of you last week, it's nearly as bad as God has got your photograph on his fridge, if you remember that. I wanna say this, there is only one letter difference between anger and danger. If we allow ourselves to live in a state of anger or allow ourselves to regularly get angry, our soul is in danger, our family is in danger, our relationships and our work situations are in danger, everything is in danger. And we as the people of faith are not immune to these challenges. So often, as in the words of C.S. Lewis, Our families can become one of the most dangerous places for our families to be. No no wonder many of them can't wait to get away because they are surrounded by angry parents, parented in and parented by and parented through anger. 
If we are angry because I believe God gives us a way out. If we are angry and we suffer with these things, God does give us a way out. He will not let us off. Very seldom will he miraculously deliver us from our temper, but he will give us a way through to a place of peace and freedom. It is his desire to minister to us and bring freedom by his grace and mercy. As I said, not to let us off, but to bring us through and to know victory. In 320 BC, the Greek philosopher Aristotle says these words, anyone can be angry, that is easy. However, to be angry with the right person, to the right desire, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that requires wisdom. Anger can sometimes be glamorized on our screen, and on our TVs, and in our films, But anger is an acid that will do more damage to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything into which it is poured. I wish that last phrase was mine, but I'm not clever enough to come up with a phrase. Those are the words of Mark Twain, that the acid does more damage to the the container in which it is contained onto anything that it is poured. It will eat away our inside. It'll eat away our hope, our joy, our peace, our excitement for the future, and our ability to enjoy other people's blessings. Frederick Buckner says it like this, and quite powerfully. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is probably the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips, over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is, is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Very powerful words indeed. (coughs) The reality is that we live in an angry, angry culture. We live in an angry world. The politics of anger have replaced the conversation of debate and disagreement. We just need to look across the world and we see so much anger. Just flick our TVs on, watch the news, read the newspapers, do anything. And we just need to realize that there's something so angry about our society today. And honestly, I can't remember it being as bad as it is today with so much discord and anger at every turn. Presently, wisdom seems to be in Incredibly short supply throughout our world. Anger is growing in terms of frequency, intensity, and duration. One writer puts it like this, and I really like this phrase. He says, we live in the age of rage, which seems to be so true. In Christian and church culture, anger is often treated as something to stay away from, or perhaps better put, not really talk about it. We know it's there, but we just wanna keep it off to one side. And this cultural attitude is not very helpful because people who are angry are simply told to stop being angry and generally told to do it pretty quickly, which doesn't help anyone 
at all. But we are really taught how not to be angry or when our anger is appropriate or acceptable or how to apply self-control to our anger. Rather than dismiss it, we need to talk it through, we need to face it. And some of that comes out of some really poor biblical teaching or misunderstanding of narratives which we won't get to today. Christian culture tends to encourage repression of anger, which is generally pretty self-destructive in my experience. Because anger is culturally embarrassing and awkward, we end up being quite dishonest with ourselves and others that we are feeling angry, if I can use it, something of a, a taboo subject. However, the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't get angry. Anger is not right or wrong, and in some ways it is neutral in so many ways. It is what we do with it (laughs) that matters. Anecdotally, if you speak to the issue of anger, one always needs to make reference to uh, to the passage in John chapter two, verses 13 to 17, and this is when Jesus goes to the temple, a place built for the worship of God and for the honor of his name, and he sees people being abused and he sees people being excluded. He sees the religious people making money out of exploiting ordinary people. And he sees money changers charging exorbitant fees and he cleanses the temple. And this is often used as an example as it's okay to be angry that Jesus was angry and he cleared the temple. Ask most groups of Christians with a Bible talks about Jesus' anger, and they will, without hesitation, probably 90 to 95% tell you that it is when Jesus cleansed the temple. And most often when the cleansing of the temple is seen or portrayed in sermons or or on movies, Jesus is depicted as, as it were, blowing his top over the money changes in the temple. He gets angry, and he's overturning tables, and he's doing this incredible job of clearing up things that are clearly not true. At this point, and most of you are thinking, well, yes, he was angry, wasn't he? That's, well, good, good anger. The short answer is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus was angry at this time. The text never tells us that he was angry and that there is good evidence that his cleansing of the temple, which actually he did more than once, was purposeful, calculated, and he was very set on what he was doing. None of the four gospel accounts will tell us that Jesus was angry. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 2. His cleansing of the temple was certainly not impulsive and it was not done out of a fit of rage or a fit of anger. The only clue we have to his motion, emotion I should say, and motivation was the acknowledgement by his disciples that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 69 verse nine which says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Zeal is not the same as anger, it is quite different. Jesus may have been angry, but he may also have been very calm and businesslike. When he cleansed the temples, the Pharisees questioned him, by what authority was he doing it? They didn't call out the temple guards on someone who was losing their temper, but Jesus was challenging the religious status quo when he tipped over those temples, those tables, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He was indignant. But you know the trouble is, when we get angry, 
Sometimes this blinds us and impairs our judgment. Jesus was not in a moment when his judgment was being impaired and his eyes weren't seeing properly. He was in full control. The cleansing of the temple is not a contextual example of Jesus being angry. There are some examples, but it isn't here. The thing is, this temple episode is exactly the kind of thing that should make most Christians angry. And so we project our own feelings onto Jesus and onto the text. We also, if we are not careful, use this episode as a rationalization or a justification for our own anger when we think we are being treated unfairly or someone is bending the rules or getting away with something that we don't like. We rationalize it like this. Well, Jesus was pretty ticked off when he cleansed the temple, so I am certainly on good ground here for being angry at fill in the blanks. At the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was intentional and calculated. He was not out of, cra- out of control, and we don't even know if, if he was shouting or loud. There is a time and a place to get angry. We should be angry at oppression and injustice. We should be angry at cruelty and at sin. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army in the 19th century, was once asked the question, in a meeting at the Royal Albert Hall, what is it that has sat at the center of your life? How have you you kept going? And just a few days before he died, speaking before thousands of people, he said this, I have seen the oppression and darkness in England and I must do something about it. We need to ask ourselves the question, what is it in the realm of oppression injustice and exploitation is making us angry today. Those who heard William Booth speak said there was, a de- there was an anger in his voice and he went on to say, where there remains one dark soul in England, I'll fight. While there are men and women go out of gin houses, I'll fight. Whilst one child goes hungry in a home in England, I'll fight. While people are dragged into prison and treated badly, I will fight and fight to the end. And in a matter of days, he was to die. There is something about a righteous anger that we should seek out. You may have heard in the news over the last 24, 36 hours of the passing of John Lewis, who is a civil rights icon. He was a 17-term congressman. He was the youngest speaker at the, the rally when Martin Luther King did that incredible speech where he says, I have a dream. John Lewis was the youngest speaker and he died Saturday morning, I think it was, in the States. And he says these words, if you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to do something about it. There is a righteous anger that we need to have. If we don't get angry at exploitation, sex trafficking, injustice, and prejudice, then something with us is out of balance. Something is out of kilter. Something within us needs to rise up with a sense of injustice and pain that exists in the world. And people are going to hell should have the same effect on us as well. It was reported that there was a 20% increase in domestic violence in New Zealand during the COVID-19 lockdown. If that doesn't upset us or make something rise within us, what does? 
It is a grim truth that around the world when popular sports teams play or the local team loses, women and children are said to suffer increased levels of domestic violence. It happens when the All Blacks lose and at other major sporting events. In 2019, the FBI reported that 460,000 children, this is an official statistic by the FBI, that in 2019, 460,000 children in the USA went missing and were trafficked. Or perhaps when fellow Christians are persecuted. In the first six months of this year, over 1,200 Christians have been killed in Nigeria for their faith and being followers of Christ. In the last year, in the last year of 2019, each month on average, 249 Christians were killed for their faith. And these are really on the low side. 790 churches and Christian buildings were burned or attacked. 309 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. If I'm allowed to say this, they are us. And there is something about a righteous anger that we need to have. Sadly, however, so often our anger is misplaced. We get angry because we have been slighted or ignored. Or we are angry more often than not because we're not getting our own way. See, the trick with anger is that it becomes inverted, turned inward. It becomes about us. It's all about me. In a study done in the States in the last couple of years, one of the characteristics of people who have short tempers, which I'll come to that in a moment, people who have high temper, one of the biggest things is self-righteousness that goes alongside that, that says that really I, I am right and I need to be at the center of everything. I don't know if you've ever read this book, but Dave Petzer, an author who went through terrible child abuse, wrote a book entitled A Child Called It. In it, he writes this about his life as he grew up. He said, inside, my soul became so cold, I hated everything. I even despised the sun, for I know I would never be able to play in its warm presence. I cringed with hate when I heard other children laughing as they played Outside, my stomach coiled when I smelled food about to be served to anyone else, knowing that it wasn't for me. It's a very powerful book, not easy to read. If we are not careful, we all suffer from this. Entitlement will breed a deep sense of anger in our hearts and in our minds, ending up displacing a righteous anger which we all need to have. If life, if the word of God teaches us anything, it is this that life is not about us, but anger desires to make everything about me, my way, my opinion, my rights, my entitlement. There are a number of Greek words used in the New Testament for anger. The most often used is a verb that has its roots in the word orge. It means to be angry, to be enraged, to team, to feel and express strong displeasure and hospitality. We're going to go to Luke 15. This is a story of a man who says to his father, give me everything I am entitled to, for I want to go and spend it and enjoy myself. Obviously, we're talking about the parable of the prodigal son. In this story, the father gives the son everything he wants, his inheritance, and the son leaves and squanders his inheritance. Most of us will know the story. He wastes it and ends up as a Jewish man eating pig swill and living amongst pigs. 
It's as low as it can get for him. So he decides to go back to his dad's house as he would prefer to be a slave there and die there than he would in the pigsty. He goes back and the father sees him and we know he receives him and restores him. He forgives him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet and they have a party. But there is someone who is very, very unhappy and incredibly angry. And of course, it's his big brother. (laughs) We pick it up. It says, now his oldest son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music (coughs) and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Just note that, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, all these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He goes on to say, but this son of yours, not his brother, not his sibling, not a family relative. He'd been reminded that it was his brother as if he'd forgotten. But he says, this son of yours, unmitigated anger, came and has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And the dad said, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Deep-rooted family bitterness and anger is probably, or arguably, the worst. The Greek word here used is anger, but it's obviously used in a wrong way and it is completely misplaced. This man is resentful and jealous and angry because he feels hard done by. He has a sense of entitlement. He, my brother, shouldn't be treated like this because he has failed. He is a waster. The brother, however, the older brother, needs to be very careful here because he is getting really angry and really ticked off with someone that the father is about to restore and about to do a really great work in. He is going to get angry at someone because he doesn't agree with what the father is doing. He doesn't agree that this man is being shown kindness and grace and mercy. Dodgy ground to be on. He doesn't celebrate the fact that he's got, been returned and got all these things from a father. And because of his sense of his entitlement, his hurt, the elder brother cannot hear what the father is saying to him. Why do we need to be careful? Because very often we get angry with people that God incredibly loves and wants to restore and wants to do an incredible work in. We have to be very careful what we say and why we get angry and why we think we're entitled to anything different or better. I don't know what our issue with anger may be, but because we respond wrongly in so many ways with it, it is going to kill us. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. It will strangle the life out of our souls. There is only one time in the New Testament when quick temper is used. And so often we hear people say, well, that's just me. Oh, he's got a short temper. Well, that's just me. I have a short temper. Oh, I can't help it. It's not a badge of honor, and we can help it. 
Military and explosive experts will tell, tell us that most often short fuses cause the most damage as they are usually uncontrollable. When Paul is an old man and writes to the young part, pastor Titus, he writes, he wants him, I should say, to understand what leadership should be all about and what should should look like, what are the characteristics. And the only time in the Bible the word for quick-tempered is used, it's here in verse 7. Paul says these words, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Verse 7, Titus 1. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. As being quick to lose one's temper can rule us out of leadership. But it doesn't always have to be like this though. For we can change and we can reframe our lives and we can reframe our thinking and we can reframe our actions if God is allowed to do a work in our lives. I wonder how our anger expresses itself. I wonder if you're a man or a woman that isn't able to control your temper, if you don't get your own way, or if you lose an argument, or if something isn't going your way or is against you. I read a fascinating article, and I'm not gonna really speak to it, but it's a fascinating article on those people who tailgate you in cars. You know the phrase tailgate? And why are they, I shouldn't say this phrase, but why are they up your bum? And they're so bad, and they said it's a characteristic so often of people who are like that, who are really short-tempered. Sometimes I want to just stop, get out, open the boot, and say, come and join me. <laughs> you obviously like me so much, let's get to know each other. <sighs> but my wife won't let me. <laughs> and I have completely lost where I'm going. <laughs> you know, so often you can get angry if you feel if you've forgotten or people have ignored you, or you've, something is going against your way. How do we deal with it? For those of us of a certain age, as we look back over our life, and most of us, I'm sure, can wonder, did we get that moment? Did we get that moment right? Did we do too much? Were we too cross? Were we too angry? Did we overreact? Did I get it wrong? And it's a thought that we can't shake out of our mind. Was I too cross in that situation? Who of us would not change something and go, go back and change that situation if we could? If we could take a word back or a sentence back that was said in anger in a moment of hurt or anguish or pain. I think most of us of a certain age would have thoughts around some of that stuff. James, Jesus' half-brother writing in his epistle talks about this very issue and says this in Verses 19 and 20 of chapter one. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to speak. And if I can add a verse from Proverbs 10, 19, which says in the message, the more talk, the less truth. The wise measure their words. One of the versions says, where there is many words, there is many lies. Many words often mean sin is unavoidable. Sometimes we speak too much. Sometimes we speak too soon, too quickly, or have to have a say. Too many words lead us into getting into trouble and sometimes losing our temper. Maybe very simple, but think, ponder, consider, and meditate before we speak. 
is always good advice. It'll often stop us from becoming cross and getting angry. When Charles Dickens, and probably wasn't him who originated this, says these words in David Copperfield, lest said, soonest amended, is a very good maxim for life. I think he's making a valid point. Sometimes I believe that the word of the Lord to us in situations is be quiet. And then he says in verse 20, James tells us that our anger doesn't produce his righteousness. Us getting angry about something or someone or a situation doesn't force God to do anything about it. We getting angry will not change God's mind. This isn't going to happen. And the root of a lot of our anger is based in the notion or the idea that God isn't doing anything, that which means that he's not doing things the way that I want them to be. So we get angry. God ain't gonna get a change of mind because you're getting cross. <laughs> he isn't intervening, so I need to do something about it. Let's just not get angry. You know, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, do not be quick to anger, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. So where does this leave us? How do we overcome anger, or how do we challenge anger? Well, here are some very simple and basic points that I just want to leave with us all this morning. <laughs> First of all, and none of us do this anyway because we don't, well, perhaps we don't admit it, don't hang out with angry people. Don't keep company with hotheads. Proverbs 22 says, bad temper is contagious. Don't get was it? infected. The Bible doesn't say if it wasn't the reality. You say, a bit basic, Chris, yes. But let's be careful of the company that we keep. And I want to talk to us today as the people of faith community and start with us. Are we keeping company with angry people? Are the people we spend time with, you know sometimes always angry, always upset, always moaning, nothing's right, always complaining, and so on. Well, if you are, change your company. Not talking about people going through a bad time or for those who have just had a bad time or a really bad experience. I'm talking about people who live with an attitude of anger, people who live there, people who are always living with discontent and moaning and complaining. Please, please, please change your company. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. It means what it says on the tin. It's a good principle. It means do not develop deep, meaningful relationships with Christians who are angry all the time or who are constantly at odds with other people or with the norm. Always against everything that's proposed, suggested, any good idea. Nah, we're getting, oh, when they start to get angry. Church, let's not be angry with each other or the wider body of Christ or, in fact, with anybody. Let's be careful what we say. Let's be careful how we react. Let's be careful how we think and speak and that our heart is in the right place, place. Healthy friendships. I wasn't sure whether I should share this, but I'm gonna do this. If you're a parent here today of kids in the teens and down, and down, I know what you think of me by the way your kids respond to me. I know as a pastor the conversation that has gone on in your house or your home, and the kids have imbibed it. 
Oh, you know, Chris Jones, he really, like, he was, man, that was rubbish, or that was bad, or really made a decision. I pick, the kids pick that up. I pick that up when I see them. And I have been very, very, very blessed here that very, very seldom have I actually noticed it. And that's not a, that's just not a get a jail card. <laughs> but you know, your kids pick up when you were angry with other people and it affects how they react with them. I just love it when kids run up to me and they just, I don't know, any kid can grab me around the, 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 the waist. Most, no kids have to grab me around the legs, do they? But it's like, <laughs> I know what's going on at home. Something has been imbibed in them at home that, hey, it's okay, it's good. Am I making any sense here? I have to be really careful. But it's not just about me, but it's like, oh, auntie so-and-so is coming over. What a silly mare she is. <laughs> oh, gosh, grandfather wants to do this or do that. Or, and we sometimes get angry in those situations. Oh, man, kids pick it up. Kids pick it up, and we need to be careful of our legacy. And we need to call out behavior that offends or offers anybody a way out or to be angry. Secondly, there are often difficult and valid reasons for why we feel angry which cannot and should not be dismissed easily. Often we do feel hurt. Life has treated us unfairly. Loved ones have been cruel, hurtful, and wounding. Someone has been promoted above us. The thing that we wanted to happen hasn't happened. It isn't always as straightforward as saying we should just get over it and stop being angry. No, we just can't get over something. Sometimes a deep sense of hurt leaves a scar that really needs a deep sense of healing to come on their lives. Being treated unfairly, being told that you're not wanted, or someone betrays us, lets us down, saying one thing or another and doing another, aren't easy to cope with. So therefore our lives end up rooted in security, in, in insecurity and fear, and this produces anger. Never being as good or believing we're as loved as a sibling produces deep resentment and often anger as we are fearful and insecure. Eventually, if we don't deal with this stuff, it'll leave us angry with God, just like Job's wife. And whom, humanly speaking, who can blame her when she says, let's curse God and died? She is angry at God and at how her life has turned out. Gently ask each and every one of us, do any of our lives turn out as we expect them to be? What is the source of our anger? The symptom might be the person sitting next to you, but the source may be a hurt from 20, 30, and for some of us 50 years ago that we need to bring to the cross. It might be that someone is getting away with something and we don't want them to which fundamentally means that we don't think that God can see. If God could see, he would do something about it. He's obviously not, so I'm getting pretty angry with him. God's not blind. No anger because of comparisons. It could be much of these and many, many more. You know, anger around acceptance or isolation or rejection this is all part of Cain's story, and it is really mostly all part of our story too. It's how we deal with things like isolation or 
not being accepted or people rejecting us. Eventually it hurts the people around us and it hurts us. Anger will rob us and everything we have and we cherish will come to nothing and we will have nothing left. We will push people away. Families are broken, relationships are broken. Fathers are separated from sons and daughters and parents because of anger and we need to do something about it. Just moving quickly. Thirdly, we need to recognize and acknowledge it. We need to recognize that we have an issue and that we have an anger problem. Don't run away from it. Don't pretend it isn't there. Own it. And until we own it, nothing will happen. We can get prayed for. We can do whatever we need to do. We can read the Bible more. We can get advice from other people. But unless we own it, nothing is gonna be, else is going to do anything. Let's not be naive enough to think that we can sort it out on our own because we can't and we won't. We need to own it and own it and own it and be desperate to get help. You know, surrounding our, surrendering our lives to God and getting help is the only way out of a cycle of anger. Great quote from one of Rick Warren's co-writers. He says this, normal people have problems. The smart ones get help. My prayer is that we'll all be smart. We're the musos. Come join me, please. <coughs> and this is a, a simple step forward, and you just think, ah, oh, isn't that the same as the one Fourth thing is, we need to reject it. I don't want to live like this. Not only just own that we have a problem of temper, but you know, I don't want to live like this anymore. I have had enough of it, and I will not feed the lie of my deluded ego that says, ah, it's no big deal. We have to reject it. We have to choose to reject it, and every time anger arises within us, we have to choose no and choose a different pathway. It is so simple, it is so, yeah, so simple. But every time we start to have anger arise in our soul, we either have to give it room and allow it to live, or we have to reject it. And my plea for each and every one of us, anger does so much damage that if we don't reject it, we will still continue on. And something starts to annoy, Trigger point, we need to reject it. We need to own it, we need to reject it. You know, and ultimately we need to repent. Realize that our anger brings hell into situations. We need to put a realization in our hearts that this thing called a temper is terrible and hellish for my family, my friends to live with. That it's not okay. That it's not part of who we are that God wants to do an incredible work in our lives. We need to allow people to come close, to, to talk to us, to share with us, to challenge us. We need people who will pray for us. We need to give it to him and to receive his grace. Repentance enables us to see ourselves as we truly are, sinners in need of a savior. It's absolutely directional. It moves us away from sin and anger, and we take it to the Lord. And we say, this is a part of my life that I do not like. And I do not want to give a legacy to my family and to those around me. Paul writes, for godly, um, for godly grief produces a, re a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. My prayer for each and every one of us who face the issue of anger, 
that we will choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to reframe how we think and how we live, how we respond and how we react, to get help, to get prayer and push back the power of death in our life that anger brings and know more and more of his wholeness and his fullness in our lives. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.